0: 14. Rich Herbert. And we may safely take that single line as expressive of the whole spirit of his writings. Professor Palmer, whose scholarly edition of this poet's works is a model for critics and editors, calls Herbert the first in English poetry who spoke face to face with God. That may be true, but it is interesting to note that not a poet of the first half of the 17th century, not even the gayest of the Cavaliers, but has written some noble verse of prayer or aspiration. Which expresses the underlying Puritan spirit of his age. Herbert is the greatest. The most consistent of them all. In all the others the Puritan struggles against the Cavalier. Or the Cavalier breaks loose from the restraining Puritan. But in Herbert the struggle is past and peace has come. That his life was not all calm. That the Puritan in him had struggled desperately before it subdued the pride and idleness of the Cavalier. Is evident to one who reads between his lines, I struck the board and cried. No more. I will abroad what shall i ever sigh and pine my lines and life are free free as the road loose as the wind there speaks the cavalier of the university and the court and as one reads to the end of the little poem which he calls by the suggestive name of the caller he may know that he is reading condensed biography those who seek for faults for strained imagery and fantastic verse forms in herbert's poetry will find them in abundance but it will better repay the reader to look for the deep thought and fine feeling that are hidden in these wonderful religious lyrics, even in those that appear most artificial. The fact that Herbert's reputation was greater, at times, than Milton's, and that his poems when published after his death had a large sale and influence, shows certainly that the appeal to the men of his age, and his poems will probably be read and appreciated, if only by the few, just so long as men are strong enough to understand the Puritan's spiritual convictions. Life. Herbert's life is so quiet and uneventful that to relate a few biographical facts can be of little advantage. Only as one reads the whole story by Isaac Walton can he share the gentle spirit of Herbert's poetry. He was born at Montgomery Castle, Wales, 1593, of a noble Welsh family. His university course was brilliant and after graduation he waited long years in the vain hope of preferment at court, all his life he had to battle against disease, and this is undoubtedly the cause of the long delay before each new step in his course, not till he was thirty-seven was he ordained and placed over the little church of the Murden, how he lived here among plain people, in this happy corner of the Lord's field, hoping all things and blessing all people, asking his own way to Zion and showing others the way, should be read in Walton, It is a brief life, less than three years of work before being cut off by consumption, but remarkable for the single great purpose and the glorious spiritual strength that shine through physical weakness. Just before his death he gave some manuscripts to a friend, and his message is worthy of John Bunyan, deliver this little book to my dear brother Furer, and tell him he shall find in it a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt God and my soul before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus my master in whose service I have now found perfect freedom, desire him to read it, and then, if he can think it may turn to the advantage of any dejected poor soul, let it be made public, if not, let him burn it, for I and it are less than the least of God's mercies. Herbert's Poems, Herbert's Chief Work, The Temple, consists of over 150 short poems suggested by the Church, her holidays and ceremonials, and the experiences of the Christian life the first poem, The Church Porch, is the longest and, though polished with a care that foreshadows the classic school, the least poetical, it is a wonderful collection of condensed sermons, wise precepts, and moral lessons, suggesting Chaucer's good counsel, Pope's essay on man, and Polonius's advice to Laertes, in Hamlet, only it is more packed with thought than any of these, of truth speaking he says, dare to be true, nothing can need a lie, A fault which needs it most grows to thereby, and of calmness in argument, calmness is great advantage, he that lets another chafe may warm him at his fire, among the remaining poems of the temple one of the most suggestive is, the pilgrimage, here in six short stanzas, every line close packed with thought, we have the whole of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the poem was written probably before Bunyan was born, but remembering the wide influence of Herbert's poetry, It is an interesting question whether Bunyan received the idea of his immortal work from this pilgrimage. Probably the best known of all his poems is the one called, The Pulley, which generally appears, however under the name, Rest, or, The Gifts of God. When God at first made man, having a glass of blessings standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can, let the world's riches, which dispersed lie, contract into a span, so strength first made away. Then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that, alone of all his treasure, rest in the bottom way. For, if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me, and rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both should losers be. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness, let him be rich and weary, that at least, if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast, among the poems which may be read as curiosities of versification, and which arouse the wrath of the critics against the whole metaphysical school, are those like, Easter wings, and, the altar, which suggest in the printed form of the poem the thing of which the poet sings, more ingenious is the poem in which rhyme is made by cutting off the first letter of a preceding word, as in the five stanzas of, Paradise, I bless thee, Lord, because I grow among thy trees, which in a row to thee both fruit and order ow, and more ingenious still are odd conceits like the poem, Heaven, in which echo, by repeating the last syllable of each line, gives an answer to the poet's questions, the cavalier poets, in the literature of any age there are generally found two distinct tendencies, the first expresses the dominant spirit of the times, the second, a secret or an open rebellion, so in this age, Side by side with the serious and rational Puritan, lives the gallant and trivial Cavalier. The Puritan finds expression in the best poetry of the period, from Dunn to Milton, and in the prose of Baxter and Bunyan, the Cavalier in a small group of poets, Herrick, Lovelace, Suckling, and Carew, who write songs generally in lighter vein, gay, trivial, often licentious, but who cannot altogether escape the tremendous seriousness of Puritanism. Thomas Carew, 1598–1639. Carew may be called the inventor of cavalier love poetry, and to him more than to any other is due the peculiar combination of the sensual and the religious which marked most of the minor poets of the 17th century. His poetry is the Spenserian pastoral stripped of its refinement of feeling and made direct, coarse, vigorous. His poems, published in 1640, are generally like his life trivial or sensual but here and there is found one, like the following, which indicates that with the metaphysical and cavalier poets a new and stimulating force had entered English literature, ask me no more where Jove bestows, when June is past, the fading rose, for in your beauties orient deep these flowers, as in their causes, sleep, ask me no more where those stars light that downwards fall in dead of night, for in your eyes they sit, and their fixed become as in their sphere. Ask me no more if east or west the phoenix builds her spicy nest, for unto you at last she flies, and in your fragrant bosom dies. Robert Herrick 1591-1674. Herrick is the true cavalier, gay, devil-may-care indisposition, but by some freak of fate a clergyman of Dean Prior, in South Devon, a county made famous by him and Blackmore, here, in a country parish, he lived discontentedly. Longing for the joys of London and the murder-may tavern, his bachelor establishment consisting of an old housekeeper, a cat, a dog, a goose, a tame lamb, one hen, for which he thanked God in poetry because she laid an egg every day, and a pet pig that drank beer with Herrick out of a tankard, with admirable good nature, Herrick made the best of these uncongenial surroundings. He watched with sympathy the country life about him and caught its spirit in many lyrics. A few of which. Like, Corinna's Maying, Gather ye rosebuds while ye may, and, To Daffodils, are among the best known in our language. His poems cover a wide range, from trivial love songs, taken in spirit, to hymns of deep religious feeling. Only the best of his poems should be read, and these are remarkable for their exquisite sentiment and their graceful, melodious expression. The rest, since they reflect something of the coarseness of his audience, may be passed over in silence. Late in life Herrick published his one book, Hesperides and Noble Numbers 1648, the latter half contains his religious poems, and one has only to read there the remarkable, Litany, to see how the religious terror that finds expression in Bunyan's grace abounding could master even the most careless of cavalier singers, Suckling and Lovelace. Sir John Suckling 1609-1642 was one of the most brilliant wits of the court of Charles I who wrote poetry as he exercised a horse or thought a duel, because it was considered a gentleman's accomplishment in those days. His poems, struck from his wild life like sparks from his rapier, are utterly trivial, and, even in his best-known ballad upon a wedding, rarely rise above mere doggerel. It is only the romance of his life his rich, brilliant, careless youth. And his poverty and suicide in Paris, whither he fled because of his devotion to the Stuarts that keeps his name alive in our literature. In his life and poetry Sir Richard Lovelace 1618-1658 offers a remarkable parallel to Suckling, and the two are often classed together as perfect representatives of the followers of King Charles. Lovelace's Lacaste, a volume of love lyrics, is generally on a higher plane than Suckling's work, and a few of the poems like to Lacaste and, to Althea, from prison, deserve the secure place they have won. In the latter occur the oft-quoted lines, Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bar is a cage, Minds innocent and quiet take that for an hermitage. If I have freedom in my love, and in my soul am free, angels alone that are above enjoy such liberty. John Milton 1608-1674 My soul was like a star and dwelt apart, bowed heads to voice whose sound was like the sea pure as the naked heavens. Majestic, free, so didst thou travel on life's common way in cheerful godliness, and yet thy heart the lowliest duties on herself did lay. From Wordsworth's, Sonnet on Milton, Shakespeare and Milton are the two figures that tower conspicuously above the goodly fellowship of men who have made our literature famous. Each is representative of the age that produced him, and together they form a suggestive commentary upon the two forces that rule our humanity, the force of impulse and the force of a fixed purpose. Shakespeare is the poet of impulse, of the loves, hates, fears, jealousies, and ambitions that sway the men of his age. Milton is the poet of steadfast will and purpose, who moves like God amid the fears and hopes and changing impulses of the world, regarding them as trivial and momentary things that can never swerve the great soul from its course. It is well to have some such comparison in mind while studying the literature of the Elizabethan and the Puritan age. While Shakespeare and Ben Jonson and their unequaled company of wits make merry at the murder Maid Tavern, there is already growing up on the same London street a poet who shall bring a new force into a literature, who shall add to the Renaissance culture and love of beauty the tremendous moral earnestness of the Puritan. Such a poet must begin, as the Puritan hall always began, with his own soul, to discipline and enlighten it, before expressing its beauty in literature. He that would hope to write well hereafter in laudable things, says Milton, ought himself to be a true poem, that island a composition and pattern of the best and most honorable things. Here is a new proposition in art which suggests the lofty ideal of Fra Angelico, that before one can write literature, which is the expression of the ideal, he must first develop in himself the ideal man, because Milton is human he must know the best in humanity, therefore he studies, giving his days to music, art, and literature. His nights to profound research and meditation, but because he knows that man is more than mortal, he also prays, depending, as he tells us, on devout prayer to that eternal spirit who can enrich with all occurrence and knowledge. Such a poet is already in spirit far beyond the Renaissance, though he lives in the autumn of its glory and associates with its literary masters. There is a spirit in man, says the old Hebrew poet, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth him understanding. Here, in a word, is the secret of Milton's life and writing, hence his long silences, years passing without a word, and when he speaks it is like the voice of a prophet who begins with the sublime announcement, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, hence his style, producing an impression of sublimity, which has been marked for wonder by every historian of our literature, his style was unconsciously sublime because he lived and thought consciously in a sublime atmosphere, life of Milton, Milton is like an ideal in the soul, like a lofty mountain on the horizon. We never attain the ideal, we never climb the mountain, but life would be inexpressibly poorer were either to be taken away. From childhood Milton's parents set him apart for the attainment of noble ends, and so left nothing to chance in the matter of training. His father, John Milton, is said to have turned Puritan while a student at Oxford and to have been disinherited by his family whereupon he settled in London and prospered greatly as a scrivener, that island a kind of notary. In character the elder Milton was a rare combination of scholar and businessman, a radical Puritan in politics and religion, yet a musician, whose hymn tunes are still sung, and a lover of art and literature. The poet's mother was a woman of refinement and social grace, with a deep interest in religion and in local charities. So the boy grew up in a home which combined the culture of the Renaissance with the piety and moral strength of early Puritanism. He begins, therefore, as the heir of one great age and the prophet of another. Apparently the elder Milton shared Bacon's dislike for the educational methods of the time and so took charge of his son's training, encouraging his natural tastes, teaching him music, and seeking out a tutor who helped the boy to what he sought most eagerly not the grammar and mechanism of Greek and Latin but rather the stories, the ideals, the poetry that hide in their incomparable literatures. At twelve years we find the boy already a scholar in spirit, unable to rest till after midnight because of the joy with which his study was rewarded. From boyhood two great principles seem to govern Milton's career, one, the love of beauty, of music, art, literature, and indeed of every form of human culture, the other, a steadfast devotion to duty as the highest object in human life. A brief course at the famous Street Paul School in London was the prelude to Milton's entrance to Christ's College, Cambridge. Here again he followed his natural bent and, like bacon, found himself often in opposition to the authorities. Aside from some Latin poems, the most noteworthy song of this period of Milton's life is his splendid ode, on the morning of Christ's nativity, which was begun on Christmas Day. 1629. Milton, while deep in the classics, had yet a greater love for his native literature. Spencer was for years his master, in his verse we find every evidence of his loving study of Shakespeare, and his last great poems show clearly how he had been influenced by Fletcher's Christ's victory and triumph. But it is significant that this first ode rises higher than anything of the kind produced in the famous age of Elizabeth while at Cambridge it was the desire of his parents that Milton should take orders in the Church of England, but the intense love of mental liberty which stamped the Puritan was too strong within him, and he refused to consider the oath of servitude, as he called it, which would mark his ordination. Throughout his life Milton, though profoundly religious, held aloof from the strife of sex. In belief, he belonged to the extreme Puritans, called separatists, independents, Congregationalists of which our pilgrim fathers are the great examples, but he refused to be bound by any creed or church discipline, as ever in my great taskmaster's eye. In this last line of one of his sonnets is found Milton's rejection of every form of outward religious authority in face of the supreme Puritan principle, the liberty of the individual soul before God. A long period of retirement followed Milton's withdrawal from the university in 1632. At his father's country home in Horton he gave himself up for six years to solitary reading and study, roaming over the wide fields of Greek, Latin, Hebrew, Spanish, French, Italian, and English literatures, and studying hard at mathematics, science, theology, and music, a curious combination. To his love of music we owe the melody of all his poetry, and we note it in the rhythm and balance which make even his mighty prose arguments harmonious in, Les Cittades, *I. I.L. Penceroso, Parcades, *Comus*, and a few, Sonnets, we have the poetic results of this retirement at Horton, few, indeed, but the most perfect of their kind that our literature has recorded, out of solitude, where his talent was perfected, Milton entered the busy world where his character was to be proved to the utmost, from Horton he travelled abroad, through France, Switzerland, and Italy everywhere received with admiration for his learning and courtesy winning the friendship of the exiled dutch scholar grotius in paris and of galileo in his sad imprisonment in florence he was on his way to greece when news reached him of the break between king and parliament with the practical insight which never deserted him milton saw clearly the meaning of the news his cordial reception in italy so cherry of praise to anything not italian Had reawakened in Milton the old desire to write an epic which England would not willingly let die, but at thought of the conflict for human freedom all his dreams were flying to the winds. He gave up his travels and literary ambitions and hurried to England, for I thought it base. He says, to be traveling at my ease for intellectual culture while my fellow countrymen at home were fighting for liberty. Then for nearly twenty years the poet of great achievement and still greater promise disappears. We hear no more songs but only the prose denunciations and arguments which are as remarkable as his poetry. In all our literature there is nothing more worthy of the Puritan spirit than this laying aside of personal ambitions in order to join in the struggle for human liberty. In his best-known sonnet, on his blindness, which reflects his grief, not at darkness, but at his abandoned dreams, we catch the sublime spirit of this renunciation. Milton's opportunity to serve came in the crisis of 1649. The king had been sent to the scaffold, paying the penalty of his own treachery, and England sat shivering at its own deed, like a child or a Russian peasant who in sudden passion resists unbearable brutality and then is afraid of the consequences. Two weeks of anxiety, of terror and silence followed, then appeared Milton's tenure of kings and magistrates. To England it was like the coming of a strong man, not only to protect the child, but to justify his blow for liberty kings no less than people were subject to the eternal principle of law, the divine right of a people to defend and protect themselves. That was the mighty argument which calmed a people's dread and proclaimed that a new man and a new principle had arisen in England. Milton was called to be secretary for foreign tongues in the new government, and for the next few years, until the end of the commonwealth. There were two leaders in England, Cromwell the man of action, Milton the man of thought, It is doubtful to which of the two humanity owes most for its emancipation from the tyranny of kings and prelates, Two things of personal interest deserve mention in this period of Milton's life, his marriage and his blindness. In 1643 he married Mary Powell, a shallow, pleasure-loving girl, the daughter of a royalist, and that was the beginning of sorrows. After a month, tiring of the austere life of a Puritan household, she abandoned her husband, who with the same radical reasoning with which he dealt with affairs of state, promptly repudiated the marriage, his doctrine and discipline of divorce and his tetrachorn nor the arguments to justify his position, but they aroused a storm of protest in England, and they suggest to a modern reader that Milton was perhaps as much to blame as his wife, and that he had scant understanding of a woman's nature, when his wife, fearing for her position, appeared before him in tears, All his ponderous arguments were swept aside by a generous impulse, and though the marriage was never a happy one, Milton never again mentioned his wife's desertion. The scene in Paradise Lost, where Eve comes weeping to Adam, seeking peace and pardon, is probably a reflection of a scene in Milton's own household. His wife died in 1653, and a few years later he married another, whom we remember for the sonnet, Method I saw my late espoused saint, in which she is celebrated she died after 15 months, and in 1663 he married a third wife, who helped a blind old man to manage his poor household. From boyhood the strain on the poet's eyes had grown more and more severe, but even when his sight was threatened he held steadily to his purpose of using his pen in the service of his country. During the king's imprisonment a book appeared called Icon Basie like royal image, giving a rosy picture of the king's piety, and condemning the Puritans. The book speedily became famous and was the source of all royalist arguments against the Commonwealth. In 1649 appeared Milton's iconoclast's Image Breaker, which demolished the flimsy arguments of the icon Basie as a charge of Cromwell's Ironside's had overwhelmed the king's followers. After the execution of the king appeared another famous attack upon the Puritans, Defensio Regia pro Carlo I instigated by Charles I, I. who was then living in exile. It was written in Latin by Salmosis, a Dutch professor at Leiden, and was hailed by the Royalists as an invincible argument. By order of the Council of State Milton prepared a reply. His eyesight had sadly failed, and he was warned that any further strain would be disastrous. His reply was characteristic of the man and the Puritan, as he had once sacrificed his poetry, so he was now ready, he said, to sacrifice his eyes also on the altar of English liberty. His magnificent Defensio pro Populo Anglicano is one of the most masterly controversial works in literature. The power of the press was already strongly felt in England, and the new Commonwealth owed its standing partly to Milton's prose, and partly to Cromwell's policy. The Defensio was the last work that Milton saw. Blindness fell upon him ere it was finished, and from 1652 until his death he labored in total darkness. The last part of Milton's life is a picture of solitary grandeur unequaled in literary history. With the restoration all his labors and sacrifices for humanity were apparently wasted. From his retirement he could hear the bells and the shouts that welcomed back a vicious monarch, whose first act was to set his foot upon his people's neck. Milton was immediately marked for persecution, he remained for months in hiding, he was reduced to poverty, and his books were burned by the public hangman, his daughters upon whom he depended in his blindness, rebelled at the task of reading to him and recording his thoughts, in the midst of all these sorrows we understand, in Samson, the cry of the blind champion of Israel, now blind, disheartened, shamed, dishonored, quelled, to what can I be useful, wherein serve my nation, and the work from heaven imposed, but to sit idle on the household hearth, a bird news drone, to visitants a gaze, or pitted object, Milton's answer is worthy of his own great life. Without envy or bitterness he goes back to the early dream of an immortal poem and begins with superb consciousness of power to dictate his great epic. Paradise Lost was finished in 1665. After seven years labor in darkness, with great difficulty he found a publisher. And for the great work, now the most honored poem in our literature he received less than certain verse-makers of our day receive for a little song in one of our popular magazines. Its success was immediate, though, like all his work, it met with venomous criticism. Dryden summed up the impression made on thoughtful minds of his time when he said, This man cuts us all out, and the ancients too. Thereafter a bit of sunshine came into his darkened home, for the work stamped him as one of the world's great writers and from England and the continent pilgrims came in increasing numbers to speak their gratitude. The next year Milton began his paradise regained. In 1671 appeared his last important work, Samson Agonists, the most powerful dramatic poem on the Greek model which our language possesses, the picture of Israel's mighty champion, blind, alone, afflicted by thoughtless enemies but preserving a noble ideal to the end, is a fitting close to the life work of the poet himself. For years he was silent, dreaming who shall say what dreams in his darkness, and saying cheerfully to his friends, still guides the heavenly vision. He died peacefully in 1674, the most sublime and the most lonely figure in our literature, Milton's early poetry. In his early work Milton appears as the inheritor of all that was best in Elizabethan literature, and his first work, The Ode on the Morning of Christ's Nativity, approaches the high-water mark of lyric poetry in England. In the next six years, from 1631 to 1637, he wrote but little, scarcely more than two thousand lines, but these are among the most exquisite and the most perfectly finished in our language. L'Alegro and I.I. Penseroso are twin poems, containing many lines and short descriptive passages which linger in the mind like strains of music, and which are known and loved wherever English is spoken. Allegro, the joyous or happy man is like an excursion into the English fields at sunrise. The air is sweet, birds are singing, a multitude of sights, sounds, fragrances, fill all the senses, and to this appeal of nature the soul of man responds by being happy, seeing in every flower and hearing in every harmony some exquisite symbol of human life. I.L. penseroso takes us over the same ground at twilight and at moonrise. The air is still fresh and fragrant. The symbolism island if possible, more tenderly beautiful than before, but the gay mood is gone, though its memory lingers in the afterglow of the sunset. A quiet thoughtfulness takes the place of the pure, joyous sensation of the morning. A thoughtfulness which is not sad, though like all quiet moods it is akin to sadness, and which sounds the deeps of human emotion in the presence of nature. To quote scattered lines of either poem is to do injustice to both. They should be read in their entirety the same day one at morning, the other at eventide, if one is to appreciate their beauty and suggestiveness. The Mask of Comus is in many respects the most perfect of Milton's poems. It was written in 1634 to be performed at Ludlow Castle before the Earl of Bridgewater and his friends. There is a tradition that the Earl's three children had been lost in the woods, and, whether true or not, Milton takes the simple theme of a person lost, calls in an attendant spirit to protect the wanderer, and out of this, with its natural action and melodious songs, makes the most exquisite pastoral drama that we possess. In form it is a mask, like those gorgeous products of the Elizabethan age of which Ben Jonson was the master. England had borrowed the idea of the mask from Italy and had used it as the chief entertainment at all festivals, until it had become to the nobles of England what the miracle play had been to the common people of a previous generation. Milton, with his strong Puritan spirit, could not be content with the mere entertainment of an idle hour. Comus has the gorgeous scenic effects, the music and dancing of other masks, but its moral purpose and its ideal teachings are unmistakable. The triumph of virtue would be a better name for this perfect little mask, for its theme is that virtue and innocence can walk through any peril of this world without permanent harm. This eternal triumph of good over evil is proclaimed by the attendant spirit who has protected the innocent in this life and who now disappears from mortal sight to resume its life of joy, mortals, that would follow me, love virtue, she alone is free, she can teach ye how to climb higher than the fiery chime, or if virtue feeble were, heaven itself would stoop to her, while there are undoubted traces of Johnson and John Fletcher in Milton's Comus. The poem far surpasses its predecessors in the airy beauty and melody of its verses. In the next poem, *Lycidas*, a pastoral elegy written in 1637, and the last of his Horton poems, Milton is no longer the inheritor of the old age, but the prophet of a new, a college friend, Edward King, had been drowned in the Irish Sea, and Milton follows the poetic custom of his age by representing both his friend and himself in the guise of shepherds leading the pastoral life. Milton also uses all the symbolism of his predecessors, introducing fauns, satyrs, and senes, but again the Puritan is not content with heathen symbolism, and so introduces a new symbol of the Christian shepherd responsible for the souls of men, who he likens to hungry sheep that look up and are.